a few Sundays ago when we were together, um, during the message, some of you at different times would put your hand up to ask a question. And um, I loved it. I wasn't ready for it. But um, now I want to be ready for it because I, I would love for these sermons to be interactive. So if you have a question uh, while I'm talking, uh, just shoot up your hand. I, uh, I'll just need to finish maybe a thought, but then I'll call on you. Um, I also have a couple times um, in the message that I am just going to pause and see if anybody has a question. So just know that that's going to be a thing uh, going forward. Uh, I'd really love to interact with you and hear where you're at with things. Um, in the meantime, turn with me in a Bible to Matthew 3. Matthew chapter 3. We're going to talk about Jesus. There have been all kinds of movies made about Jesus, and I'm usually disappointed with how Jesus is portrayed. He's a little too, I don't know, how do you say, he's a little too pretty. Like he's like a hair shampoo model or something. Like no wonder people followed him. I mean, wouldn't you? Look at that guy. So I'm never really satisfied with how Jesus is portrayed. The Bible movies, however, they always get Jesus's cousin, John the Baptist, they always get him spot on. John in the Bible movies, he always looks like a cross between Tim the Enchanter from Monty Python and the Quest for the Holy Grail and Hagrid from the Harry Potter series. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but the first person that you meet in the Jesus story, it's not Jesus. The first person you meet is his cousin, John the Baptist. How many Christians have you met who, when they're telling the gospel story, they begin with John the Baptist? Probably nobody you know. And there's a reason we don't start with John. And that's because we don't take seriously Jesus' role in Israel's story. But all four gospels agree, you can't understand Jesus apart from John. John is the link that connects Jesus to Israel's history. So who is John, and what's John doing? Last week we left off with the Jewish exile, where people were wondering, is our story over? Is, is that it? Is God done with us? But then sometime later, some, some of the Jews were allowed to return home. But the ones who had come home, they looked around, and they just knew things were not exactly right. Most Jews were still living outside the land of Israel, their temple was only a shadow of its former glory. And there was no king from David's line on the throne. And the nations, far from being attracted to the light and glory of this holy nation, they hardly noticed them at all. So, Israel began to complain. God, where are you? Why aren't you with us? You didn't keep your promise. And then along comes the prophet Malachi. He's the last of the prophets he tackles this head on. He says, I'll tell you why God isn't with you. You failed to teach the truth. Your priests are getting divorces. You're offering diseased animals as sacrifices. It's an act of mercy that God isn't with you right now. Because if God was with you, it wouldn't be for your redemption. It'd be for your judgment. Malachi tells them, you're, you're not ready for God to return. You're not ready for God to be with you. So, Malachi declares, God is going to send a messenger, somebody like the great prophet of old, the prophet Elijah, to prepare God's people before God arrived. 
And that's what John is here to do. He's getting people ready. So follow along with me in the Bible in Matthew chapter 3. Does anybody remember what John wore for clothing? A garment made of camel hair and a belt made of leather. Now these are not trivial details. This is exactly the clothing of the prophet Elijah. John is the promised messenger who comes in the spirit of Elijah. And what's John doing? He's baptizing people in the wilderness. Now what is baptizing? John is taking people through water. Now think back on Israel's story. What's a major moment in the story when people in the wilderness were taken through water? John is reenacting the Exodus. And don't miss this. This time around, as they reenact the Exodus, people aren't leaving Egypt. They're leaving Israel. This is not a positive statement about the state of things for God's people. People had started to realize that they were the problem. They were standing in the way of God's return. So, they come out from their cities and their towns into the wilderness to reenact the Exodus so that they can own up to how they had failed in their calling. They go through the water to say, God, redeem me, rescue me, remake me so that I can be part of your people. And then Jesus shows up and his first public act is to be baptized. He is identifying with Israel's story, and he is going to fulfill the story in himself. And Jesus' baptism is key to all of this. What happens at Jesus' baptism? People go into the water, and everybody confesses their sins, but not Jesus. Jesus confesses nothing. Instead, God the Father confesses Jesus. And the Father does this in two ways. First of all, he sends his Holy Spirit. And if you know Israel's story, you know that the Spirit is critical to all of this. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Joel, all the prophets are waiting for the day when God will put his Spirit in his people. Israel needs God's Spirit if they're going to be God's people. They can't do this on their own. And it's the same for you and me. Only by God's Spirit can we become God's people. Because the way of Jesus, it's not about trying harder. Jesus didn't come to give us a message of just, hey, just get out there and try harder, everybody. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. So we need God's Holy Spirit to make us new, to bring us to life again, to regenerate us. Jesus comes up out of the water, and what descends on him? The long-awaited Spirit of God. This is the beginning of the new creation that God had promised. God confesses Jesus with the Spirit of God. And then the Father confesses Jesus with his own voice. He says, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This is God's declaration of who Jesus is and what he's here to do. And the voice of God echoes two texts, 
Psalm 2, and Isaiah 42. Psalm 2, it's about a king. Through the reign of this king from David's line, God is going to exercise his worldwide rule over the nations. It's going to be a rule of justice and mercy and things being set right once and for all. And then Isaiah 42 is about God's servant. God is going to put his spirit upon this mysterious servant of the Lord figure. And the job of this servant is to restore Israel. He's going to be a light to the nations. But the interesting thing about this servant is he's not going to bring change like a conquering warrior. He's not the kind of person who's going to demand our attention. That's not the kind of leader that he is. On the other hand, I love this. He won't break a bruised reed. He won't quench a smoking wick. The picture is this. For anyone who's almost lost hope, this servant is full of extraordinary compassion. And the combination is critical. This king is a king of compassion. At the baptism, we're, we're supposed to understand David's great son has come. And he's going to rule. But not how people expect a king to rule. He's going to do things very differently. But there's more. The father calls Jesus his son. And then Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days. What is a major moment in the Old Testament when someone was called God's son? And then the number 40. And we hear also about the wilderness. Son, 40, and wilderness. Exodus 4.22, God says to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son, let him go. And then God rescues Israel from Pharaoh's hand and he leads them through water and then into the wilderness for 40 years. So what is happening with Jesus? Jesus is taking up Israel's story into himself. He's bringing a new exodus. He's becoming a true Israelite. He's going to embody the life that Israel was never able to live. Israel was tested in the wilderness, and Jesus was too. But the difference is, Jesus doesn't fail his test. In Matthew and Luke, uh, Matthew 4 and Luke 4, they echo the Exodus story for us. And the question, the tension in this whole thing is, is Jesus going to betray what it means to be God's son? Because the people who came before him, they, they failed completely again and again and again. They couldn't live out this calling. Is Jesus going to betray what it means to be God's son? Is he going to use his power in ways that deny God's character? So test number one, Jesus, are you going to satisfy your own hunger by turning stones to bread? And as Jesus refuses this temptation, he makes a really important statement. Because this is not just about eating. This is about living according to God's way. Because a life that's not about God's way, it's not really a life at all. It's not a life worth living. Then, test number two, Jesus is shown all the kingdoms of the world. And the tempter says, Jesus, isn't the, the kingdom your goal? But buddy, you, you don't have to go to the cross to get to the kingdom. All these kingdoms belong to me. They're under my power. They're mine to give away. If, if you just bow down to me, you can have all of it. 
You can have the kingdom apart from a cross, apart from this suffering, apart from this loss. But Jesus says, no, I will not use my power to avoid my calling. I will be the servant who gives his life. I will see this thing through, even if it kills me. Then test number three, Jesus is taken to the top of the temple. And the tempter says, Jesus, there's, there's quite a crowd here. I mean, if you threw yourself down from here, then the Bible says, the Bible says that God will rescue you from death. So I've got, I've got here a sequin jumpsuit with a big letter J on it. And I've got you two all queued up, ready to play. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And if you just at the at the height of the of the song, just throw yourself off from the temple. Everybody's gonna see it. They're gonna be just amazed. As first they think you're gonna die, but then God sends His angels, which the Bible says God will rescue you. He will send His His angels to rescue you from death. They'll catch you. Jesus, this is gonna be amazing. This is gonna really kick off your kingdom. But Jesus says, No, I will not manipulate people's deepest religious longings just so I can gather a movement. And the Gospels tell us that because Jesus does not betray his sonship, Jesus comes out of the desert in the power of the Spirit. Now, all this is great stuff, but hardly any of, any of it makes as much sense as it could and connects as much as it, as it could if we don't understand the story of what happened before Jesus came along. If we don't know the Old Testament story and the scriptures, there's a lot of stuff that we miss. So um, just wanted to pause here, and I didn't know if anybody had a question. If anybody, if there's something I could clarify, or if you had a, th or, or maybe you have a thought, something that just, something you hadn't seen before, something connecting for you in a fresh way. Um, anything? Where's Elijah? I know they, yes. they asked Jesus, are you Elijah a couple times? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Where would I find that? Yes, so Elijah's story and then his disciple Elisha is in First and Second Kings. And there is a people, uh, people, they ask uh, John the Baptist if he's Elijah, and they also ask Jesus because you see Jesus doing a lot of things that Elijah did and a lot of things that Elisha, his, his disciple, did. And, uh, and, and they would connect the two people. They wouldn't have to, they would, Elisha, carried things out in the spirit of the guy who discipled him. So just because um, Elisha did some things that Elijah didn't do, they see Jesus doing all this stuff. He's, he's bringing dead people back to life. Um, he's feeding people in the, in the desert. Um, he's speaking powerfully and calling kings to account for, for how they're doing things. And people are going, this guy looks a lot like Elijah. And so some people are asking John, are, are you that guy? And some people are asking Jesus, are you that guy? A lot of those things. Yeah, yeah. If you look at his story, you'll go, oh my gosh, Jesus did that. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. So first and second kings. Mm -hmm. Great question. Yeah. Other questions? See, I actually had an answer. I, 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 I didn't know. I didn't know anything to clarify or, so, or just something that's jumping out at you that I hadn't seen before. Okay, cool. Well, um, just put up your hand if, if there's another moment. So uh, Jesus then, he comes out of that wilderness testing in the power of the Spirit, and we, he begins to announce the kingdom of God in two really powerful ways, with mighty deeds and mighty words. Uh, first of all, mighty deeds. Everywhere, everywhere Jesus goes, we see him healing the blind and the deaf and the mute and the crippled. Now, why are we being told about this? These are, these are very specific 
forms of healing. And, and it doesn't tend to divert too much from those four areas. Remember from a few weeks ago when we were talking about creation and temples, what is the very last thing to go into a completed temple? Does anybody remember? What's the last thing to go in? Yes. Yes, the image of the God goes, yes, well done. Well done, sir. Um, yes, so the image of, God, of, of the God is the last thing to go into the temple. And in our creation story, you and I are told that we are the images of God in, in the temple that is his creation. We're the ones who are meant to reflect his life and character in the world. But our story also goes that we rejected our calling as people who are meant to reflect God's life and character in the world. We said, eh, I don't like how you're doing things. I want to do this my own way. And so instead of re uh, representing God's good character in the world and how he rules and cares for creation, we rebel. We go about doing it our own way. And as a result, we become damaged images. We, we, we no longer fully, beautifully reflect the character of God. We're not able to do it. And so Psalm 115 and Psalm 135 and Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel 12, they're all saying that people who turn to false gods, even if that false god is yourself, but also other false gods, people who turn to false gods, it says, will become just like them. They will have eyes that cannot see, they will have ears that cannot hear, mouths that cannot speak, and feet that cannot walk. It's this dehumanizing pros uh, process that's described. You, you worship and follow God, you become more human. You worship and follow anything less than God, you become less human. You become dehumanized. And so we see Jesus, the healer, going to work on very specific parts of the body. Now, why didn't Jesus go around curing like baldness and receding hairlines? Like, sign me up for that. I will be in that line, Jesus. Why arms and ears and legs and mouths and eyes? Because Jesus is healing the images. Jesus is committed to people who are created in his image. What God creates, he restores. That's his character. He redeems and he restores his image bearers so that we can again be his partners in the world, so that we can again be a part. God's not saying, I want to do this instead of you or go around you. He's like, no, I still want to do this through the people that I created and I love, but I have, to, I have to set you right again. So he's healing the images so that we can be agents with him and bringing his shalom into the world. Isn't that cool? Isn't that great? I love that about Jesus. So then, then there's a moment when uh, Jesus is in a boat with his disciples and there's this powerful storm that comes up and Jesus is asleep. I love this. The disciples are panicking, and they wake Jesus up. Like, Jesus, if we're going to drown, then you should be awake when it happens. <laughs> Panic with us. And Jesus wakes up, I think kind of groggy and a little grumpy, doesn't panic. I think he's kind of annoyed. There's no pious sounding way to put this. Jesus basically just turns to the storm and says, shut up and it does. And then we're told that the disciples are more afraid of Jesus than they were of the storm. They're saying, who is this? Because there is only one in their story who tells the sea what to do. Only one. You think you're in the boat with a great teacher or a great prophet? What do you do when you're in the boat with God. 
Nobody was expecting this. And so with the storm no longer a problem, they come to the shoreline, and running towards them is a man, naked, bleeding, screaming, out of his mind. And Jesus speaks to the spirits who have been keeping this man enslaved. They say that their name is Legion. And this is a military number, because this man is filled not with one demon, not with two demons, but with a whole military host of demons. This man is so oppressed. And Jesus casts this demonic army into a nearby herd of pigs, at their request, by the way, and these now militarized porkers run down the hillside and they drown in the sea. This is a weird story, but here's the question. What is a major moment in the story when someone commanded the sea and then immediately after an enemy army was drowned in the sea? Can anybody think of a major moment in the story? When, has, when have we already seen this? When? in the Exodus. And just in case you missed it, in the very next moment, Jesus then feeds a multitude in the wilderness, which is again an echo of the Exodus and the people crying out and saying, we're hungry, we're starving, and God feeds them in the wilderness. Who else does things like this? In their story, there is only one who does things like this. So through his mighty deeds, healing the images, bringing a new exodus, telling the sea what to do, salvation from an enemy army that then is drowned in the sea, feeding a multitude in the wilderness. You and I are not allowed the opportunity to say that Jesus was just a great teacher, or he was a, he was a mystic, or he was a spiritual guy, or he was a prophet. We don't have that luxury of saying that about Jesus. Clearly, we're meant to understand that he is someone who is so much more, so much bigger. People will tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God, and that's because they're ignorant of the story that's happened before Jesus. They're not able to connect the dots. Jesus is the only one, Jesus is doing what only God does. But if we don't know the story, we don't know what we're looking at, and we totally miss it. So uh, I just wanted to pause again. Any uh, questions? Anything I can clarify? Something that's jumping out at you? You feeling fire hosed? Anything? Don't don't worry. No pressure. I just uh, wanted to try something out. All right. Cool. So um, so mighty deeds, but not just mighty deeds. We see Jesus speaking these mighty words. Uh, Jesus comes into conflict with his enemies about what he had to say about two really big questions. Question one, what's God like? And two, what, is it, what does it mean to be holy? What's God like? What does it mean to be holy? First of all, what's God like? Jesus heads up a mountain, and he begins to teach. Now, I know this is getting a little repetitive, but any other major moments in the story when people receive teaching from a mountain— when in the story has this already happened? Ten Commandments, well done. Yes, Curtis, at Mount Sinai, when God gave the law, when God gave the Ten Commandments. Other teachers of, of Jesus' day, uh, they wouldn't take too much authority with what they would say. They would, they would lean on the authority of other people before them. They would say, Moses said, or Rabbi so-and-so said, 
But here at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, hey, I know you've heard it said, but now I say to you, I say to you, who does Jesus think he is to be able to speak with that kind of authority, to be able to reinterpret scripture and, say, and, 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 and point people to the heart of God? Who does he think he is? Whose voice are we hearing from this new mountain? Back on Mount Sinai, God is the one speaking. And there was a boundary that was drawn around the mountain where God said, do not cross this line. I am too dangerous. You will die if you cross this line. Only a few select people got to go up and hear God speak to them. But on this new mountain, Jesus is speaking, and there is no authorized personnel-only signs anywhere to be seen. Everybody can come up. Everybody can hear how to be a part of the thing that God's up to. Unlike Mount Sinai, there's no warning. Instead, Jesus' first words are, hey, is there anybody here who just knows they don't have what it takes to do the God life? You just can't do it. Is there anybody here who is poor in spirit? Is there anybody here who just, they already feel disqualified and they already feel like this can't ever be for them? Jesus says, congratulations, the kingdom of God is yours. That's how Jesus kicks off the greatest sermon ever. It's an amazing picture of what God's like and who he wants to partner with. What else is God like? Jesus tells all these parables to help us know God's heart. In Matthew 20, Jesus tells a story about some men who had lost their land, and so they were reduced, uh, from, uh, reduced to living hand to mouth, day to day. Picture the guys in the Home Depot parking lot who are just waiting for somebody to give them work just for that day. Just for that day. If you work, you eat. If you don't work, you don't eat. Now imagine that you have a seven-year-old daughter. You didn't get any work yesterday. So what did you feed your daughter? She's hungry. Dad, I'm, I'm hungry. Where, where's breakfast? Few things are going to destroy a man from the inside as quickly as not being able to provide for the ones that he loves. So he is there first thing in the morning, but there's no job for him. He's still waiting at lunchtime. No work. Nobody needs him. All throughout the hot afternoon, still no work. Finally, at the last hour, a vineyard owner comes up and says, hey, you want a job? And he jumps to it. Now think about this guy. Where is his mind at? Is he, is he really thinking about the quality of his work and how he's doing in this last hour of the day? Nah. He's, he's thinking about how I can be first in line to get my wages so that then I can be first in line at the bakery to get a loaf of bread for my daughter. He doesn't need to eat today. I, got, he, I, can, I can go hungry, but if my daughter is fed, I'm going to be okay. At least I can get her a little loaf. And so the, the bell rings at the end of the day. He goes, he gets his payment, and he is off like a shot to the bakery. But then he opens his hand, and what does he find? A whole day's pay for one hour of work. And Jesus says, this is what God is like. He does not give us what we deserve. He gives us what we need. 
He's a compassionate God. This is the character of God that Israel was meant to reflect to the world, to their neighbors, to a, a world worth of, of, of gods that demanded everything and gave nothing, to say, no, 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 this is what God's like. And this is what we should be known for. People who don't keep a scoreboard and treat people according to what we think they deserve, but we treat people according to what they need. People who are generous and compassionate because God is generous and compassionate. But then this brings up a second conflict that Jesus has with his enemies. Jesus, if, if everybody can come up the mountain and be with God, if there's not like a ranking system here, if people who like barely contributed to the vineyard and, and they get in at the last hour, Jesus, what does it mean for people to be holy? I thought it was about keeping the rules. So what does it mean to be holy? This was, this was a, a big conflict that Jesus faced with his, with his, with his enemies. What's holiness? Well, there's a story. One Sabbath, Jesus and his disciples are walking through the grain field, and as they go, up jump the Sabbath police. Hey, you can't do that. It's the Sabbath. And um, this is one of my favorite biblical author, um, uh, artists, uh, James Tissot. He always does unique stuff with perspective. So this is the perspective of the Sabbath police. So you see Jesus and his disciples walking through the grain field, but you see these guys just hiding. Who has nothing better to do on their one day off than to look for rule breakers? Some people really have nothing better to do. We have met some of these people, have we not? Aren't these exhausting people to be around? You're paranoid all the time about making the wrong step. Yes, Jeffrey. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hmm, that's a really good point. Yeah, yeah, what are you guys doing? You should be, yeah, home, being with your families. Yeah, you guys are, yeah, wow, I never thought about that, that they could be working by, yeah, just hiding out. Yeah, they... I think you're right, and I think at the same time they would defend themselves being like, well, I'm defending God's honor, I'm, but you would be like, yeah, bro, <laughs> seriously, you're totally missing it. And that's Jesus' point to these guys. Jesus could have taken them up on the fact that they weren't actually breaking the law, but he wanted to make a bigger point, and he, he had to let them know, guys, you have your creation story all wrong. You have it totally backwards. Jesus says you've got it all wrong. You, you think that on one of the creation days, God created the law all shiny and perfect and beautiful, and then God thought, hmm, something's missing. Oh, I know. I need to create some people to keep this perfect law. There we go. Jesus says, you've got it totally backwards. God created people, and then he created the law to keep those people. Why? Because only people are made in God's image, and people are very precious to him. So he wanted to protect them. He wanted to keep them. He wanted them to experience the, the, the truest, fullest life that was possible. Only people are made in God's image. Not the temple, not the Sabbath, not even the scriptures are made in God's image. Only people are made in God's image. So holiness is not about how well you and I keep the law. Holiness is about how well you and I keep people. That's why Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, hey, what sums up the law and the prophets? What's, what's, what's what, all those laws? What's just a, a short, succinct way to bring it all together? 
do to others what you would have them do to you. Good job. I don't even know. Yes, probably. Luke, Luke 6.31? All right. Thank you. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, be nice to people who've already been nice to you. Jesus says, my followers make the first move. We are gracious first. We are compassionate first. Why? Because that's what God's like. He sends his reign on the evil and the good. Everybody gets blessed. That's what God's like. God is always making the first move. Do you know that you could be holy like God is holy? Do you know that you could reflect the, the, the heart and character of God to other people? You can do this when you're the first to give life to other people, when you're the first to bless and to be generous. You are holy when you keep people, especially people whose society says don't deserve it. Then you really look like God. So who is Jesus, really? He brings a new exodus. He's the true Israelite, but he's so much more than that. Jesus does and says the kinds of things that only God does and says, restoring broken images. He has control over creation. He has authority to explain the scriptures and the heart of God. He is more than just a mystic or a wise teacher or a prophet or a good man. That, that we cannot say only that about him. He is so much more. He is none other than Emmanuel, God with us, walking among his people. And in Jesus, a brand new day has come. It is no longer about following the law. It had been, and that was a good time and that was a necessary time. The law was kind of like a babysitter until the parents come home and until the kids are mature enough to be able to do things without somebody supervising them. But it's no longer about following the law. Why not? Because Jesus says, I'm here now. Now it's about following me. But if you're the kind of person who has built your life around law keeping and making sure that other people do too, and you've built a whole ranking system for who does this the best, and you're feeling like pretty successful at it, and this is really working for you, and then somebody comes along saying it's not about that anymore, and you've built your whole life on this, is it any surprise that there are people who wanted to silence Jesus? The scribes and the Pharisees and the temple authorities, they hand Jesus over to the Roman authorities to be executed. But amazingly, Jesus even uses his betrayal to achieve the purpose for which he had come. He's going to take the, the act of his own creations murdering him, and he's going to use it so that he can redeem them. That's what God's like. Remember Jesus' temptation to let go of his suffering servant calling and just go around the cross to get to the kingdom? No, I will not betray my calling even if it kills me. And so, in anticipation of where all this is going, Jesus pauses and he has an evening with his disciples. He remakes the Passover. That's what you and I celebrate when we celebrate communion. But Jesus says, now instead of the death of a Passover lamb, I fulfill everything that the Passover lamb was pointing to. This whole thing was a sneak preview of who I am and what I was going to do. Now, the bread, take this, and it's my body. Now, the cup, take this, it's 
my blood. Jesus takes the whole story that had been about their rescue, and he says, this story, the whole thing was pointing towards my arrival. I am your rescuer. It's no longer about an exodus from Egypt. Now it's an even greater exodus from the greatest exile of all, which is death. In the beginning, you and I, we were called to rule and to care for creation the way God does, the way he rules and cares for his creation, but we rejected that calling. We rejected God's kingship. We decided to use and abuse people for our own purposes to mistreat one another. And because all of us have treated other people badly, there's all this death swirling around all around us, and there's nothing we can do about it. Why? Because we don't have life in ourselves. Look at us. We are dying a little bit more every single day. We are all in really desperate trouble. The only one who can rescue us from death is somebody who can take death into himself and overcome it. And that's exactly what God does in Jesus. He absorbs this. He takes death into himself. And this is the ultimate picture of what God is like. If you want to know what is God really like, look at Jesus on the cross. Here is a God who will take the punishment due to rebels who hate him and mistreat him and reject him and abuse him. He takes it so that he can give them life. That is what God is like. The light of the world shines the most brightly from the cross as Jesus gives his life for his enemies, for you and for me.